And today we come to the second of the not-so-magnificent seven, the church in Smyrna. Although with this one, actually, this church is not one that Jesus is critical of. This one has no rebuke. This is actually a church that's going through a hard, hard time. And this letter is a one of encouragement. But also it's a warning that harder times are on the way. I want to say this right at the start. When a church is persecuted, often the first thing we can do is go, Ooh, I wonder what they did wrong. It's our default. The church is going through a hard time. Must be God's judgment. They must have done something wrong. But you know, in this case, <laughs> and often in persecution, it's not a case of what they did wrong. It's because of what they were doing right. Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. <coughs> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right, before we dig into this this morning, let's do a little bit of background on Smyrna. Where is and what is Smyrna? Smyrna was a Greek city, a very strategic port and an important place on the trade route of the Aegean coast. It, it, it rose to huge prominence in that area at the time. In fact, it competed with Ephesus and Pergamum for the title First City of Asia. So this was a prominent place. If it was inevitable that Ephesus should come first in the list of these churches, it was natural that Smyrna would come second. It was like the great rival of Ephesus. Of all of the cities of Asia at this time, Smyrna was known to be the most beautiful city. It was such a nice looking city, actually in part because of its history. It was one of the very first and very few planned cities in the world. You see, most cities kind of grow and develop over time and then sort of burst at the seams a little bit and sort of get a little bit out here and then a little bit out there. You know, when you walk around London, London just doesn't seem to make any sense because London wasn't planned. London just happened. It's like London just fell there, you know. But this city was planned from the ground up. 
It was founded originally around 1000 BC, but around about 600 BC, it was attacked and it was destroyed. So it went through this period of about 400 years where it wasn't really a city anymore. It was like a little collection of villages where a city used to be. And then they brought it back, planned from scratch. You know, when we think of planned cities today, you tend to get the picture of the concrete cities like Milton Keynes. You know, that was planned to be a lovely place to live. I'll not comment on Milton Keynes. Or oh, Wellwyn Garden City, you know, that, they were planned. Well, this was the same sort of thing, but it kind of worked. <laughs> it had great big broad streets on it. It had well-crafted paving. Its most famous street was known as the Street of Gold. And it started at the Temple of Zeus and went all of the way through the city to the Temple of Diana. Now, we don't know how much gold was in the city. There was talk, you know, the streets are paved with gold there. Gold is not a good material for paving. It's slippy. So I don't think the streets were paved with gold, but it had a lot of gold on it. In fact, you'd say when you'd look at the city from a distance, this street looked like a necklace hung around the city. So this was an important, wealthy, powerful city. A city that had essentially died and then come back to life. Which we'll get into when we get into the passage, but there's a parallel there. This place is now in western Turkey and it's known as Izmir now. In fact, we've got some images of what it looks like today. Um, the ancient city, whoop, that way, no, that way, that's it. <laughs> the ancient ruins of the city you can see kind of still exist in some form, but in contrast to the modern city. Now, that bottom one is of the train station where there's this modern train station built on top of those ancient ruins. So what about the church that was here? Well, if the city was wealthy, prominent, and powerful, the church was poor, persecuted, and had very little sway. We don't know how this church in Smyrna began, or who planted it. It may have been a work that came out of Ephesus. It may have been an unrecorded place Paul visited, or a companion of Paul's. Or it might have been something as simple as somebody here in the gospel somewhere like Ephesus, taking it home and sharing it when they got back and something break out. Never, never look past the power of somebody here in the gospel in one place and taking it to somewhere else. Great things can happen when we do that. One of the earliest named leaders of this church was a guy called Ariston which just makes me think of the advert, Ariston, and on, and on. <laughs> and then by about 100 AD, it was led by somebody called Polycarp. Now, this guy would have been in his mid-20s, probably, when John writes Revelation. So he might have led the church at this time, or he might have just been in it. And at this time, there's a small Christian community in this city. And they were already going through hard times by the time this letter is even written. 
This was a poverty-stricken church. They were treat as second-class citizens. There's a lot of places in the world today where that's exactly the same situation. Where if you're a Christian, you're second-class. Not only were they poverty-stricken, they were poverty-stricken in a rich city. It's not like having a little bit of not, not much money in Billingham. It's like having not much money in London. Everything's more expensive in a rich city. They were slandered by what is referred to in this letter as the synagogue of Satan, which will definitely come back to that. And they were most likely also persecuted by the Roman authorities. And the message Jesus wants to share with this church is this. It's not going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse. But there's two important things before we move into the content of the words of Jesus to this church. First of all, this is only one of two churches in the seven churches of Revelation that are not rebuked by Jesus. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both are not criticized. But second, this church, unlike Ephesus that we heard about last week, this church survived. Even though at the times it went through times where it was small and it was weak, and it, compared to the church in Ephesus, it wasn't a big church, it endured. Even after the fall of Constantinople and the, con and the conquest by the Muslim Ottoman Empire, it shrank, it was persecuted, it went through hard times, but it did survive. Even after the city itself was destroyed in 1402, there was still a small Christian community there. And even today, there is a Christian presence in Izmir, which is modern-day Smyrna. This suffering church, and boy, this church suffered, endured. So what is Jesus saying to this church? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. These are the words of Jesus. The first, the last, the one who died and now lives. Jesus starts his letter by reminding them exactly who he is. The person writing to him is the one death could not hold. The one who defeated death on the cross. That he is the beginning and he is the end. Listen, we would do well during hard times to remember exactly who Jesus is. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the one who died yet now lives. When we go through hard times, church, we must always, always remember who our Jesus is. Because the second we take our eyes off Jesus, then our eyes fall down to our sufferings. Are we looking at him or are we looking at the problem? When we focus on our problems and look at our problems, <laughs> we run into trouble. When we focus on Jesus, we have the strength to endure. 
Jesus, right at the start of this, is reminding them who he is. But he's also identifying with them. You know, at the start of each of these, um, these, these messages to the seven churches, Jesus introduces himself in a different way at the start of each one. And at the start of each one, the way he introduces himself is telling us something. It always comes back into play when we get to the actual message itself. For example, last week with Ephesus, it starts by saying he's the one who holds the stars and the lampstands. Well, that comes into play when he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. He starts by saying, I have the authority to take away the lampstand for this church. Well, here we get he who died and came back to life. Now, in some ways, that's an echo of exactly what this city had experienced. Smyrna had died and come back to life. He's identifying with them. But it's also shown us a Jesus who understands persecution and suffering. You know, when we go through hard times, when we go through persecution, when we go through suffering, we have a God who can relate to it. We have a God who understands. He doesn't just sit at a distance and go, oh, that looks hard. No, he knows how it feels to go through hard times. He knows how it feels to be slandered. He knows how it feels to have everyone against you. And he knows what it feels to be put to death for it. Thank God. Jesus was a man of sorrows. So when I experience sorrow and I pray, I'm not praying to someone who doesn't get it. I'm praying to someone who understands it. We can... We have a God who understands what it feels like to be us. That was true for Smyrna. That's true for you too. But the other thing is, is saying this is, I am the one who died and now lives, is he's telling them, death didn't hold Jesus back. Jesus conquered death. And because Jesus conquered death, you will conquer death too. Listen, the worst thing this world could ever do to you is kill you. And that's not so bad because Jesus has conquered death. He then indicates to them that he's very aware of their current plight. He says this, starting in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Tribulation. Affliction. The emphasis behind this word is like being crushed beneath a heavy weight. Has anyone ever felt like that? Here's a better question. Has anyone ever not felt like that? This was a church undergoing massive pressure where it just felt like everything was pushing them down. Tribulation is not a gentle word. It's not a light word. It's not a mild thing to go through. This church was suffering. And they were poor. In a prosperous city, they were the downtrodden. They were the second class. They had nothing. But Jesus says, ah. 
you are rich. Listen to what James says about those who are poor. James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Listen, when we're poor in the world, we can be rich in faith. And not only that, we have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's the greatest thing anyone, that's bigger than anything you could ever own. See, the church in Smyrna is a church that would not fit in the health and wealth prosperity gospel framework. They'd be rebuked by the prosperity preacher. You've got a lack of faith. You're not living in the blessing. It's a church that wouldn't pass the prosperity gospel's standard. Oh, but it passes Jesus' standard. Jesus commends this church. Listen, if you're struggling financially, don't let anybody tell you it's because you've got a lack of faith. You are rich in the kingdom of God. See, not only was this church persecuted, pressured, and poor, they were slandered. Slander, in other words, false accusation. Now, we don't know who was telling these lies. We're told, well, I'm sorry, we don't know what these lies were, but we do know who told them. They were those who say they are Jews, but are not. And Jesus refers to them as the synagogue of Satan. Now, take out your head a picture of an actual synagogue where everybody goes to worship Satan. No, not that. Before we get into that, though, Listen, slander is hurtful, yeah? I get it. When people throw slander at you, say this, you're not of God. When people accuse you of being a liar, when people accuse you of being a terrible Christian, when people slander your faith, when they say the Bible is dangerous, <coughs> dangerous. when they say you're bigoted, when they say you're close-minded, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. And slander, it can come at you from all angles. It gets in your head, follows you around. You know, they used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Oh, that's not true, is it? Your bones heal faster than your head. It hurts. But at no point here does Jesus say, it's okay, just brush it off. Jesus says, I understand, you're slandered. You know, they did the same to him. They told lies about Jesus. They said his work was demonic. They said he spoke falsehood. Listen, Jesus gets it. He knows. And in those moments, we can choose to say, you know, we can pull back and go, you know what? It just hurts too much. I'm not going to put myself out there again. I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to step up. I just can't. I, I can't. I can't. I'll pull back to the place of safety. I'll retreat. It's certainly easier that way. Nobody can slander me if I don't do anything. 
And we can miss the opportunity God's put in the midst of that. The opportunity God's put in the midst to have victory over it. You know, what if Jesus had pulled back when they slandered him? What if Jesus had decided he didn't want to deal with the hurt? Where would we be? Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning I just want to say to you, if you are slandered, you are blessed. When you're persecuted, you are blessed. I know it doesn't feel like it, but Jesus said you are, so you are. <coughs> For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. I know we don't want slander. I know we don't, we don't want verbal abuse. But Jesus said it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Those of you who've gone through hard times because of other people slandering you and saying things about you that's not true, you are blessed. You're blessed. <coughs> this attack came from people who called themselves Jews. I tell you, a lot of attack can come from people who call themselves believers. Yeah? And I tell you what else, those are the attacks that hurt the most. You expect it from the world, you don't expect it from the church. The term the synagogue of Satan is one <laughs> that understandably has caused to be a contentious thing throughout history. Because, because we don't really know what it is, it leads to people making false assumptions about what it is and have misused the term right throughout history. Now, there's a couple of different possibilities, and I'll give you them, and we'll go over the likelihood of which is which. One is that they were people who were by birth Jewish, but didn't know God. That was a term, or it was a term of Jewish movements that denied Jesus and opposed the church. Now there was a very influential Jewish community in this city. They'd actually given 10,000 denarii towards making the city look so beautiful. If you up that to today, you're talking about 340,000 pounds to the city. So there certainly was a Jewish community there that had a lot of influence. Now, of course, the initial converts to the church would have come from the Jewish people. So you can imagine there's a kickback. This is a different um, level than the Judaizers who harassed Paul. They were Jewish Christians who wanted to ensure Gentile Christians lived by the law of Moses. That's, this is something more opposed to the message of Jesus than that. 
So that's one view. Another view is that there were Gentiles who called themselves Jews, i.e. they called themselves the chosen people of God. But they didn't worship God at all, they worshipped the Roman Emperor. Those are a few different views. I tend to go with the second one, that there were Gentiles who called themselves the chosen people of God, not that they were the Jewish, although there was persecution, obviously, from the Jewish people and from the Romans right throughout the early church. I think this synagogue of Satan is something different, and that there were Gentiles who called themselves Jews, because it says they call themselves Jews, but aren't. Whoever they were, they had a lot of influence and the church was suffering because of them. And Jesus uses that very harsh term to describe them, the synagogue of Satan. Now, I, I want to put a, a very big disclaimer in here. Do not Google synagogue of Satan. <laughs> because it will produce some links that are not good. Not good at all. There's conspiracy sites dedicated to referring to the synagogue of Satan as Jewish people today and how they're running the world. I tell you, it's awful, awful. And right throughout history, it's being used as an anti-Semitic term. Don't accept that, okay? It is not that. Whatever has been referred to here was specific and local to Smyrna and Philadelphia because it's also mentioned there. This was people who were persecuting the church, and any attempt to extend it beyond that is a misinterpretation of this passage. So if you ever come across anybody calling the Jewish people a synagogue of Satan, shut it down. It is anti-Semitic, and it's wrong. These were people who opposed the work of Christ. They're not called a synagogue of Satan out of any anti-Jewish agenda. But because all who oppose the work of Christ are agents of Satan. We have to remember the message of the gospel will be opposed. And man is not the problem. Satan's the problem. It's Satan who wants to see the gospel stopped. Satan wants to see the work of the church stopped and we can't let him stop us. Nowadays we don't have to deal with what's been referred to as the synagogue of Satan. We have to deal with all kinds of other things that say the gospel's not right. You're not allowed, we're, 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 we are not far off from laws being made where the very idea of saying to someone you should convert to Christianity will become illegal. We're not far off. It's one more piece of legislation and we're there. Well, that's a work of Satan. And we must oppose it. And we must fight it. But we also must expect persecution from it. So Jesus starts by saying to his church, I know what you're going through. I know it's hard. Now you'd think after that you'd get a word of comfort. <laughs> but no. Jesus follows that up with a warning. He says, I know this is hard. I know you're going through it. It's going to get worse. Verse 10. 
It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days will have tribulation. Jesus tells them something's coming. Well, not just something, he says the devil is going to do something. The likelihood, of course, that it was done through those that Jesus called the synagogue of Satan. Some of them were going to be thrown into prison. Now, you can go a little bit like, well, prison's not so bad. You know, it's not as bad as the death penalty. It's not as bad as being lynched. Prison back then isn't the same as prison right now. You went to prison there. If you were a prisoner, you were basically only in prison until they led you out to die. That was why you went in. And it says this is a 10-day time of tribulation. Now, that's not a literal 10 days because, let's be honest, if it was a literal 10 days, I think you could hide for 10 days. Has anyone ever watched, uh, what's that program called on Channel 4? Hunted. I always imagine that I would do really well at that, where you go on the run and everyone's trying to chase you. I think in reality I'd last a day before I got too hungry and would go home. But, you know, 10 days isn't, isn't unachievable. This is more likely to actually be a, a, a not literal 10 days. It was an expression for a short time that would come to an end soon. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, this is coming, it will be sharp, it will be hard, but it will be short. Some take this to mean actually 10 days is speaking about something that's going to happen a lot. Frequency, abundance. There'll be many times of persecution, but they'll be short-lived. Another is that it's 10 prophetic days, which is 10 years. That's worse, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if I could hide out for 10 years. Um, which actually the churches in this area did go through 10 years of persecution under the Roman emperor. Oh, you know what? I was hoping to get away with not pre presenting his name yeah, the Roman emperor at the time. <laughs> but Smyrna wasn't the only place persecuted during those 10 years. And this passage is specifically aimed at Smyrna. And there's loads of other interpretations. It's, the trouble is with this, you can get lost in the woods. You know, you can go so far into this. And, what were the 10 days? What were the 10 days? I think you miss the point when you do that. Because the point was, Jesus wanted them to know, persecution's coming, be prepared but he started by saying to them do not fear what's coming is bad but it's limited in time some of you will not get through it but don't fear and why should they not fear because it's not going to be that bad no that Jesus will stop the suffering? No. That if they just pray enough, they'll find that it lifts? No. If they decree and declare enough that it's cancelled in the name of Jesus, it won't happen? No. That's the kind of nonsense theology you expect to hear today maybe, but no. They should not fear because Jesus is the one who died and now lives. 
He's the one who endured suffering himself and he knows what they're going through and they are not alone. I wonder how we'd react if a letter from Jesus came to this church or to you, or to you personally that said you are going to go through a time of suffering and persecution. How would we react? Would it be with fear? Or would it be with faith? We need to remember Jesus is victorious. He's the one who died and now lives. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. The devil might throw things at you. He may come against you hard. And you may get hurt when it happens. You may suffer. You may go through tribulation. But I tell you this morning, Jesus is with you through it all. And he is victorious. You might and get through it. Jesus said, not all of you are going to live. But you must remain faithful. Regardless. Remember we live for him. He is the focal point of our lives. We aren't. Jesus encouraging them to, is, not, is, is saying not all of them will survive it. He says be faithful unto death. Starting at verse, end of verse 10 there. He says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. But starts by saying be faithful. Be faithful up to death. Even if it leads to death be faithful. You know I think that's a conviction that's missing in the modern church. People have trouble remaining faithful during inconvenience. Let alone death. Church, we need to build a steel into our faith. A steel into our individual faith. We need a conviction in us that will not shift no matter what happens. If the world lets you down, you don't move. If the church lets you down, and it will, you don't move. If we let ourselves down, and you will, you don't crumble. If those we love turn on us, if those we rely on fail and fall away, if people we've admired fail, we must remain steadfast. We must have that steel in us, church. And I think it's so missing from the modern church. I don't think we're good at it, but I really think we need to be. I get amazed by how many Christians abandon the faith because life got hard. Because hardship came, because the church let them down. Guys, we need more steel in us than that. We need to make this declaration. I don't care what else happens. I am in this till the end. I am in this to the point of death. And nothing will turn me away from Jesus. Nothing. 
You know, we've been rocked in this world by big churches crumble. And you know that in all of those churches, there's, there's, there's going to be hurt people who fall away from the faith as a result of it. And that's such a tragedy. And that's not to excuse the, what's gone on in the churches. But guys, we need more steel than that. We need more steel in that, us than that. If this church was to crumble, that's not prophetic. We need to have a steel in us that will not abandon the faith as a result of it. We can't put so much store in people that if a person who we admire fails, it knocks us. We're in this to the end. Even when church is hard. Even when church lets you down. Even when church doesn't meet what you wanted to meet. I am in this to the end. We cannot be lightweight believers. Be faithful. Even unto death. No matter how bad it got for the believers in Smyrna. They could trust that the one who died and now lives was with them. Jesus has experienced the worst that life could throw at him. And that's death. A painful, agonizing death. You know, this world has not thrown anything at you worse than what he has experienced. So he's the perfect companion to walk with you when you go through it. He's the one at the other end of it who can give you, it says, the crown of life. It's Jesus who offers life everlasting. Nobody else offers it. And I understand there's times it gets hard. You know, there was times sometimes that Jesus' teaching was hard. There's a point where he starts talking about eating his body, that people walk away and abandon him. And he turns to the disciples and say, you going too? And they say, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Church, we need that steel. When it gets hard, when it gets confusing, where else are we going to go? Jesus has the words of life. He's the only one that offers Eternal rewards for faithfulness. You know, steadfastness might not be easy. I think that's kind of the point. But steadfastness is worth it. He says, those who overcome, those who are faithful to Christ, those who are saved, this world may break you, this world may kill you, but the second death cannot hurt you. And after all, which one really matters? It's interesting, that term, the second death, because it's never been used in Scripture up until this point. Even in the book of Revelation, it comes later. So this is the first time the second death is ever used as a term. Later, when it's used in Revelation, it's talking about the lake of fire and sulfur that comes after the judgment. 
But there's no explanation here. I wonder whether it's a term that was already pretty much in circulation. It's not written down, but people knew exactly what was meant here. When you are in Christ, the second death can't touch you. You will not be hurt by it. The first death might hurt, but the second one won't touch you. It's amazing how much time we spend trying to avoid the first death and not even give a thought to the second one. What happened to this church? Well, this church survived. Its lampstand was not taken away. But boy, this church suffered. Polycarp, one of its early leaders, gave his life. He was bound, burned at the stake, and then, well, the fire didn't seem to do the job, so they stabbed him afterwards. But you know what? The second death will never hurt Polycarp. The second death will not hurt any of the others in the city that gave their lives because they remained loyal to Jesus. Jesus did not say to them, fear not. It's not going to be that bad. He said, fear not. Because even though it's going to be bad and many will lose their lives, you will receive the crown of life. I can see why this church is not rebuked. This church had steel. You know, this, this church, it looks on the outside, it's, it's a lot of brick. I think what's holding this church up is mainly steel. Would that be fair? Ish. So what's holding this up? <laughs> See, we can decorate the surface, but you need steel going through the middle. You need steel to hold things together. I realize my building experience is not good, so, you know... <laughs> A persecuted church is a church to be commended. Because what they were doing was right. We know all who wish to live a godly life will suffer persecution. When a church is persecuted, it's very easy to say, judgment, judgment upon them, as God did that. That doesn't fit with this. Persecution will come. But in the persecution, there's hope. Fear not. Endure, and you will receive the crown of life. Now, this was a specific foretold persecution that came to the church in Smyrna. You can't make that about you. Yeah? Because it was about them. We can't take that prophecy and apply it to us because it was for them. Last week there was a real challenge for all of us in terms of obedience and loyalty to that first love. That was very easy to apply generally. But we can't turn this prophecy into a one that's about us. But there's a challenge here for all of us. We know persecution will come because the Bible says all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. 
We may not have been given a prophecy that we will suffer for 10 days and some of us will be thrown into prison. But we have been told the world will hate us for Christ's sake and that we will suffer persecution. We are also entering a time in the world where the church is slandered from every direction, even from within. We are in a time now where tolerance is extended to everyone except Christians. So I'm not saying this is a prophecy, but I will say what I see. Church, it's going to get harder. The church is going to come under more and more pressure. And you are going to come under more and more pressure to conform. You know, we live in a bit of a bubble at the moment. Across the world, the church knows persecution. The church knows suffering. There are many nations around the world today where meetings have to be in secret. And in our bubble, it's easy to forget that. Let me tell you, the persecuted church hasn't gone anywhere. It's still with us. But the bubble we're in, it won't take much for it to burst. So much of the worldwide church is given into the spirit of the age. And it will become harder and harder for those who resist it. A church that says what the world doesn't want to hear will be persecuted. And I believe we're about to enter one of the hardest times that the church in this country or in the West has seen in a long, long time in terms of persecution. Again, that's not a prophecy. That's just what I see. We must develop the steel that the church in Smyrna had. If it means we're thrown into prison, we hold the line. If it means our lives, we hold the line. Historically, the church thrives in persecution because the persecuted church identifies more with Christ and relies more in Christ. And Christ must be our focus. Church, even though I've said it's going to get bad, fear not. For the one who died and now lives is with you. Whatever this world throws at you, endure it. Be faithful. And you shall receive the crown of life. Jesus, we thank you that you were with this church in Smyrna. And Jesus, I thank you that you're with us. Lord, I pray you can give us the steel that that church had. That, Lord, we won't bend and we won't break when the pressure comes. That we won't be tossed to and fro by every change in doctrine. The Lord will stand firm on the rock. And the rock is hearing your words and obeying them.
pray for those in this room who have gone through hard times. Times of persecution. Times of suffering. Times where they're at odds with everything around them. Holy Spirit fill them. Holy Spirit work in them. And Holy Spirit strengthen them. Pray for those who are about to endure a hard time. That Lord, the words this morning won't disappear. But Lord, when hard times come, when persecution comes, Lord, remind us who you are. The one who died and now lives. The first and the last. And Holy Spirit, be our strength and give us the strength to endure it, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.